it's that simple mantra of providing support for today and hope for tomorrow. And it's about how we can achieve more together for our beneficiaries and keeping that relentless focus on what it is our beneficiaries want from us. And a lot of the time, I think that's about us providing hope, providing some really, really thoughtful thoughts on the future and options for how we can make this world a better place that others can get behind. Welcome to Season 2 of the Charity CEO Podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders. This is the show that gets beneath the surface of issues, engaging in meaningful and inspirational conversations with leaders from across the sector. I'm the Vio Connor, and each episode I will be interviewing a charity leader who will share with us their insights, knowledge and topical expertise on challenges facing our sector in these turbulent times. This show is for everyone who cares about the important work of charities. My guest today is Baroness Delleth Morgan, CEO of Breast Cancer Now. It is a real treat to engage with someone so experienced and accomplished, and I had the added honour of this being Delleth's first ever podcast interview. Delleth is widely credited with achieving consolidation and collaboration in the breast cancer space, having presided over not just one, but two major charity mergers. We talk about the significant progress that has been made in research, treatment and care, but that there is still a way to go towards creating a future where everyone with breast cancer lives. Delith has some fantastic advice on leadership, on influencing, on not giving up, and of course, on mergers and collaboration. This conversation is full of golden nuggets of insight and inspiration, or perhaps I should say rose or pink tinted golden nuggets. I hope you enjoyed the show. Well, hello, Delith. Welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to have you with us today. I'm very pleased to be here. Excellent. So you may be aware that I like to start the show with an icebreaker round and I have five questions for you. So if you're ready, we can get started. I'm ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) Question one. As a child, what did you dream of being when you grew up? Well, this is a funny kind of answer because when I was a very little girl, I wanted to be a cowboy. <laughs> so oh, wow. my, my nickname <laughs> my nickname was Cowboy Joe. And then when I got a bit older, I wanted to be a research scientist. And I think that was very influenced by my older sister who became a research scientist. So, yeah, Cowboy Joe or a research scientist. Brilliant. Question two. What are the top three qualities that you think are important in a leader? Well, first of all, probably humility. (laughs) That's essential. I think empathy would be up there. And I think probably commitment. I think you've really got to commit if you're going to be successful in taking your organisation wherever it is you need to take them. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty big one. I was only allowed three, wasn't I? So... Well, you can have one more if you like. (laughs) (laughs) It's what we're going to talk about later, maybe. I think you've got to be able to collaborate. You've got to be able to listen and work with people rather than just try and do it all on your own. That's not leadership. So, yeah, collaboration. Agree with that. Question three. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in the world right now, what would that be? 
Well, I think I would try and get people to listen to each other a bit more so that there's less kind of broadcasting and more more dialogue. I think that would be my thing. Question four. If you were a Spice Girl, who would you be and why? Oh, (laughs) I think I would have to be Baby Spice because I am the baby sister in our family. I was also, when I was introduced to the House of Lords, I was the youngest woman, although obviously I'm not anymore because I've been in the Lords for, for over 14 years now. But also I started as a chief executive at 34, so that felt like quite a baby. I was definitely a baby in the cancer community at the time. And of course, I am surrounded by pink all the time. And I think <laughs> I think Baby Spice likes pink. That's definitely something I experience. Lots of pink around me. I love that Baby Spice in the House of Lords. Brilliant. <laughs> so our final icebreaker question. If you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be? And what one question would you like to ask them? Well, I recently watched a documentary about rock against racism and it made me feel very nostalgic about when I was at school and we used to go on all those kind of demos and go and see the the bands of Victoria Park and things. And I remember seeing polystyrene there on the stage singing about identity and it's about 10 years ago that she died of breast cancer and I'd love to talk to her now about what she thinks of what's going on in the world around identity and all the challenges that we face in in the current dialogue, but also as a mixed race woman, what she could do to to help us kind of improve diagnosis and awareness in diverse communities of, of breast cancer, really. And I'm sure she'd have some really good words of wisdom for us. Well, talking about breast cancer, let's move on then to our main area of discussion for today. So talking about breast cancer now, where you are, of course, the chief executive, we know that one in seven women in the UK are likely to develop breast cancer during their lifetime, and that breast cancer is the biggest killer of women under the age of 50 in the UK. So tell us, Delith, about the work of Breast Cancer Now and its vision and mission. So Breast Cancer Now is still a young organisation. We've been in our current setup for only a few years and we are absolutely dedicated to tackling breast cancer from all angles, whether it's from the perspective of someone going through incurable breast cancer who wants support or whether it's from funding research to find new treatments and stop women dying of breast cancer. We're tackling breast cancer from all angles. And for me, it's all about making a difference to the impact that breast cancer has on people's lives and whether that's offering support and information today or hope for the future because of the research that we're funding. That's what we're we're all about. And And our vision is that by 2050, everyone who develops breast cancer will live and be supported to live well. And and that, for me, brings it all together in one statement, really. Can you tell us a bit more about the context of breast cancer, perhaps relative to other cancers? And how have things changed over the past 25 years or so since you were first the chief executive of Breakthrough Breast Cancer? 
things have changed enormously. I mean, when I started at Breakthrough back in, in 1996, people didn't talk about cancer. It was very much about trying to raise awareness of breast cancer and what the signs and symptoms are. There's still a lot of that to be done, but there's just so much more going on in terms of the screening service and in terms of the awareness of the genetic predisposition to breast cancer. And the research effort is so exciting now compared to, you know, when we were starting out all those years ago. So there are so many opportunities now for further developments. There's much more understood about all the different types of breast cancer. So now if you're diagnosed, you can get a very, very clear picture of the kind of breast cancer and which treatments your cancer might respond to. Lots of options around surgery, reconstructive surgery, and also radiotherapy has moved on incredibly. So, so while there's so many options for women diagnosed with breast cancer, still we've got a situation where there's about 11,000 women die every year. When I first got involved, it was 15,000 women died a year. And of course, a few men do get breast cancer as well. So we haven't really seen that number going down as much as we would want. And I think it's quite easy for people to think because we've been so successful kind of raising awareness of breast cancer and raising funds for research, it's a job done. But actually, there is so much more to do if we really are going to stop women dying of breast cancer. And we know from people who contact us through the helpline or through our fora, online fora, that what the first thing anyone thinks when they're diagnosed is, am I going to die? So the real risks and the impact on people's lives of, of breast cancer is still just enormous. And we've got to change that. This is where I suppose collaboration comes in and actually lots of organisations coming together within the sector in order to drive impact for patients and people affected by breast cancer, I think is absolutely key. And Delis, you are widely accredited with bringing about a lot of collaboration in the breast cancer sector. So I know that you presided over the merger of Breakthrough Breast Cancer with Breast Cancer Campaign back in 2015 to form Breast Cancer Now. And more recently, you brought Breast Cancer Care and Breast Cancer Now together in another merger. So can you share with us some of your key learnings from those two merger processes? For me, it's been absolutely clear right from the very early days that our beneficiaries expect us to work together as charities. And when we were still three separate breast cancer charities, we might think about, oh, well, Breakthrough Breast Cancer, we've set up a research centre, breast cancer campaign, we provide funding for research anywhere in the UK, dependent on, on the quality of the application, and we run a tissue bank. Breast Cancer Care, we have the most amazing helpline, staffed by helpline nurses, specialists in breast cancer. We run the most amazing courses moving forward, and someone like me kind of buddying systems, and we're there for everyone affected by breast cancer. But that, for me, is all about people saying, how we're all different. <laughs> and actually, when it comes to really strengthening the influence and power that an organisation can have, it's really great to focus on what we have in common. And interestingly, when the charities worked together, whether it was through the early days when we had a thing called the Breast Cancer Forum that would help us to coordinate our breast awareness messages 
during Breast Cancer Awareness Month or would help us to do our campaigning around the pink ribbon or we would work together very, very closely. And it just became so clear that we could achieve more together. We could have that greater impact. We wouldn't have to ask people to choose between us if we came together. And that that's really how it worked really. So we've been very fortunate with having some amazing trustees. And I think I have to take my hat off to the various boards and trustees along the way who have you know, spent hours, literally hours, thinking through all the practical ramifications of bringing the charities together at the various stages that we've been through. And it's always been the trustees who have literally had to sign themselves out of existence as a new board is formed and sometimes give up their cherished role as a trustee for their respective breast cancer charity. So I think being clear that you can achieve more together and seeing that benefit in very practical ways is absolutely key. And then having really strong trustee decision-making governance processes that can allow you to make what will be difficult decisions. I like what you said there about focusing on what you have in common. And that has actually been sort of an important thread through the merger processes. And I'm quite intrigued by what you said there, Dorothy, because I know that research collated by Harvard Business Review states that 70 to 90 percent of mergers actually fail to unlock their expected value. So I'm curious to hear how you ensured that value was captured and unlocked through the merger process and how you have now come on to essentially show that bigger has proved to be better for breast cancer? Well, I think for us, it has been very timely. I'm absolutely convinced that had we continued as three separate organisations, we wouldn't have been able to withstand the challenge of the pandemic in the way that we have with a very sudden drop in fundraising income, a really, really sudden need to kind of pivot the organisation to providing entirely digital services and so on and and fundraising around digital fundraising events and so on. So so I think that has actually been a rather (laughs) sudden and early (laughs) exemplar of how we've benefited from coming together and being a stronger organisation where we've not been competing with each other just to stand still. But through the process of assessing whether or not the Breakthrough Campaign merger or the Breast Cancer Now, Breast Cancer Care merger, it was very much about looking at the practical reality of what would we actually have to do to put the organisations together? What are the synergies that we're expecting to see? And with the Breakthrough Campaign merger, both research charities, but funded research in a very complementary way. So there wasn't a huge amount of overlap in terms of our programmes. And then when we came together with Breast Cancer Care, again, very complementary because over the years, the way the charities had grown up, we'd kind of grown up not duplicating each other. So the real opportunity comes in that strong messaging to supporters and potential supporters where we're not asking people to choose or we're not asking decision makers to choose between our messaging. This is what we need in breast cancer. That's what we can say now without having to say, but what about this or what about that? Just a much clearer message and strategy. What we've done is set out those synergies and worked really hard to deliver them. 
So I understand that your experience of mergers actually goes back to when you were the president of your student union of your college at the University of London and that your college, I believe the Bedford College, actually merged with another. So you're certainly, you certainly have years of experience with regards to mergers. And just tapping into that a little bit more, Dallas, I mean, talking about the practical reality of mergers, what advice would you give to charity leaders who might be considering a merger right now? I mean, what are the top sort of most critical things they need to consider before going down that path? You absolutely have to be forensic about the costs, the opportunity, and be incredibly tough on yourselves about the evidence that you have for the synergies. If you think you're going to be able to make savings in your operational costs, then work out what you think they genuinely are before you launch into it. Because mergers can be expensive and you need to think about what is your business model. And if you're thinking of it because you're in financial difficulty, then it may be that those financial difficulties may just read across into the new organisation. So there has to be, you have to be greater than the sum of your parts, really, to make the merger work. And if it looks like it's the financial challenge that's driving, you have to remember it costs money to merge. There's no shame in thinking, well, actually, it would be better to be a takeover or an acquisition or a different type of model. I mean, we've actually, in the last couple of years, we've actually taken under our wing a couple of small charities who are set up in memory of of individuals. And And it's actually been about helping them to deliver on their mission without the kind of admin that they had to do, because we're doing that anyway. So we're able to help, you know, fund some research in a particular area for them and so on. It doesn't have to be a merger because merging can mean creating a whole new entity, legal entity. It means transferring all sorts of assets. And if you are going to lose senior staff, then that's a big, big change to get right don't assume it's absolutely the first thing you might want to do don't be scared of thinking about other options I wonder if we might see more of that different type of model that you mentioned there Delith in terms of more of an acquisition particularly as we're coming towards the end of the government's job furlough scheme and there may be many charities that are kind of at a cliff edge in terms of their financial position and I think as 2021 goes on towards the end of the year we may see sadly some charities having to shut up shop altogether and close their doors and it may be that actually some of those acquisitions or takeover considerations might be the way forward. I think you're right. And I think it means having to be very honest about understanding what your real assets are. You know, that might be expertise about, say, a particular niche or you know, particular expertise around, say, a particular kind of benefit or, you know, a particular um, client group where you've got particular experience and, and knowledge and, and really understanding what that is, because, there might be other organisations who could really make the most of that because often we get attached to the comfort of being in a particular bubble of people and and actually if you really focus on the beneficiaries and what your real purpose then sometimes that you can let go of 
some of the traditions and things that you thought might might have been important. But suddenly when you're losing your income and you can't see a way forward in fundraising, then you've got to think, well, what is it we've got and who might be able to cherish this and do something with it? That's a really tough situation for charities. And I think furlough scheme, when it comes to the end, I am really worried about what all that kind of amazing expertise that there is in the, particularly in smaller community based organisations that the larger charities would do well to think about supporting perhaps. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head by saying that it's important to understand what your real assets are, what the real value of the organisation is and not being afraid to stand behind that value and be proud of it and put that forward. Mm. Dallas, I'd like to talk now about the impact of the pandemic on delayed healthcare. I mean, you mentioned about the pandemic earlier and how actually being a bigger, stronger organisation allowed you to pivot much more quickly. But in terms of the impact of the pandemic for beneficiaries or for patients, it is estimated that 1.2 million women have missed out on routine breast cancer screening checks due to the pandemic. And I believe that there are over 90,000 breast cancer referrals that have not yet taken place. And what this means is that there are people in the community who potentially have cancer but have not yet been diagnosed. And we all know that late diagnosis can have a really devastating impact on people's lives. So I know that Breast Cancer Now has joined the One Cancer Voice campaign, along with 46 other cancer charities, which is another great example of collaboration there, to essentially lobby the government to put more resources into clearing this cancer backlog. So can you tell us a bit more about One Cancer Voice and how it came about and what you would like to see now from government? In the cancer community, I think over the years, we've really, as you will know, actually, <laughs> we've really worked together over many, many years with different governments. And just it's so clear that when when you do the work to identify, again, what we have in common and to articulate that in a way which we can all support, it just has a much greater impact. And in cancer, you know, as we know, there are very many different types of cancer in excess of 200 different types of cancer in breast cancer, we've been able to raise awareness and do, do a lot. And then other types of cancer, people with prostate cancer, people with pancreatic cancer, have formed specialist charities as well. So by working together under the umbrella, really, of the One Cancer Voice, which came about really quite gradually over the years, and it's really come into its own with the pandemic, because as you can imagine, things changed very suddenly for cancer patients whose treatment might have been paused, adjusted, changed. And so we were receiving, as cancer charities, we were receiving regular briefing from from NHS England and the devolved administrations. And we just felt it was so important for us to be offering really consistent advice. And so that's where One Cancer Voice came into its own so that we would be saying to people on our websites and our helplines, really, really consistent messaging about COVID-19. And then, of course, that evolved into us wanting to be really clear about what we're asking from the government. And for me, the most important thing that we're really rallying around for changes on investment in workforce. And that is because 
We had a quite a crisis pending in the cancer workforce anyway before the pandemic. But now with this backlog, breast cancer, as you've explained just now, is there's a really significant backlog in, in diagnosis that needs to come forward nearly 11,000 people in the UK living with potentially undiagnosed breast cancer, but also other cancers too. And yet there isn't a long-term workforce plan to invest in the cancer workforce. So the radiologists, the radiographers, the surgeons, the oncologists of tomorrow, they're just not coming through. The investment isn't there in the way that it, it needs to be. So we're really making that case, not just for one-off kind of injections of funding, but for a plan, a multi-year plan to invest in growing the cancer workforce. And that's so important for the diagnostic side of things, but also breast cancer, for example, where there are lots of new treatments coming through. But every time there's a new treatment that requires more time in clinic, more tests, more scans. This is a good news story for people with previously un uncurable breast cancer, but they need to have that time with the expert clinicians. And so we need to be sure that they're being trained up and drawn into the, the service as effectively as they can be. I'd like to come on to talk a bit further about the crisis in the workforce in the context of Brexit. But whilst I have you, Delith, I absolutely have to ask, given your experience working in government and as a peer in the House of Lords, can you share some tips on how to really influence decision making, particularly when dealing with policymakers and people in government? What advice do you have for charity leaders? <laughs> wow. Well, it's a little while since I was a minister in government, but I've never worked so hard in my life. But it was quite an experience. Um, a lot of my time is spent taking legislation through the House of Lords. And the thing that's really struck me is particularly when I was in what is now the Department for Education. At the time, it was the Department for Children, Schools and Families, taking forward an education bill through the Lords and having in irregular catch-ups with the children's sector to hear from them about what they thought about this bill and what should be improved or changed or whatever. The moments that really struck me were when they all got together and said, Minister, this is the most important thing we need you to look at. If there was one thing that you could do, because usually as a Lord's Minister, you might have one or two concessions that you can argue through with the commons ministers and if I knew that they were really doing the work to prioritize their own areas and, and present to me what was absolutely the key change then that really helped me in terms of my negotiations within the department and so on so that's one thing to make sure that you're you're not arguing between each other <laughs> you're presenting a really coherent kind of sector view and then the other one, I think, and this is particularly important for now, is to really understand what it is that the ministers themselves are looking for and the policy makers, what it is from their perspective they're trying to achieve. And then what that is, how you can see that from your perspective. And so working out that those shared goals again. And often it's about getting the, the language right as well, because sometimes People get very, very attached to certain kind of words and phraseology and where you can live with language that is 
understood by the person you're trying to influence, then use it. <laughs> it's about really thinking yourself into the, the other person's shoes, I think. That's such valuable advice. Thank you. And I suppose it comes back to, as you were saying earlier, for the sector to really speak as one voice and for actually charities to collaborate a lot more in presenting that united sort of sector voice to government and to policymakers when trying to influence. And for me, really explaining to government how the government can achieve its objectives by working closely with the charity sector or this particular agenda. You know, it's getting, helping the government to understand in their terms what you're trying to achieve. Absolutely. And I know, Dallas, that there's been a lot of feeling or sentiment within the sector that there's been a little bit of a gap in that understanding this past year in terms of the support that the sector has needed. We had recently the Right Now campaign that was asking for more funding, which actually didn't come through when Rishi Sunak announced the budget. Why do you think that has happened and how do you think the sector can sort of build bridges now? It's really hard for us to get that cut through at times of national crisis because from the government's point of view they've got so many issues to deal with and there is a tendency for policymakers to to revert to type and to as the charity sector we might want to position ourselves as great potential partners but ultimately we are potentially viewed as an added extra as a nice to do certainly not as a an essential. And I think that's where we've got to absolutely make the case again and again and again for our unique contribution, whether it's in disadvantaged communities about the levelling up agenda or economically, or whether it's about disparities in equalities. We have to keep making that case again and again and again. And we can't rely on what's happened before because you think about it in government a lot of the advisors mps they're all new you know but they haven't been around the block very many times a lot of them so we just have to keep making our case and you know i remember back when i had my first job in the sector i worked in shelter and at the time the relationships with the government were really tough and we had to build relationships mp by mp and focus on helping build an understanding of what a homelessness charity was all about. And it's not changed since then. It's just tough grind. <laughs> mm, so we have to keep up the, the good work and the good fight for much longer. We can't give up. Yes. <laughs> we have to keep making the case. Absolutely. Daz, I'm keen to get your thoughts now on another important issue, which is Brexit and specifically the impact of Brexit on the UK's medical research sector. I mean, I feel that this past year there's been so much focus on the pandemic. We've all forgotten that Brexit has, has happened. So can you tell us some ways that Brexit will impact the sector? I mean, you already referenced the crisis in the workforce. I know that there are other impacts, for example, UK's ability to participate in international clinical trials. I mean, what does this mean for UK medical research going forward? The truth is that we don't quite know yet how it's going to unfold. And our eyes have been on the pandemic while this huge seismic change has been going on around Brexit. I mean, 
research is a global effort. And in the past, we in the UK may well have been thought of as a kind of a window on Europe in terms of medical research and clinical trials and, and so on. We need to be part of, as closely as we possibly can, to be part of a harmonious regulatory environment with Europe when it comes to clinical trials. The last thing I think patients in the UK need is for us to be another bureaucratic hurdle for a company wanting to, to do trials to develop new drugs in in Europe and that's something I really worry about and also the research effort needs to be truly global and the the research workforce needs to be mobile and we had some news recently about Horizon Europe and government contributions to that which means that we should be able to continue in membership of that scheme which is absolutely essential for for collaboration across Europe. So chipping away at the barriers, I hope we can do absolutely our best to keep the UK at the top of the global research league tables if there there are such things, but it's going to be a fight, I think. The UK research ecosystem is is so complicated and the drivers for success are, are quite difficult to get understanding about in in government and with the terrible impact of the on fundraising of the pandemic there are real worries about research funding generally and i think that it's absolutely essential that as a as a nation we can maintain that great sense of mobility that you need for playing a full role in the global research community. And whilst we had that as part of the EU, we have to work extra hard to hold on to it, I think, on the outside. As a medical research charities, we will be continuing to argue for that wherever we can, whether it is arguing for the government to maintain membership of Horizon Europe or whether it's making sure that we're on a regulatory even keel with the rest of Europe so clinical trials and and so on can be done as easily in the UK as anywhere in Europe so that patients in the UK don't get deprioritized for that kind of research so we can continue with access to new and experimental technologies so so yeah I think it's hard work but we've got to keep it up yeah absolutely I think it's so important for continued progress and talking about the future how do you see the rest of 2021 unfolding and how are you preparing your organization to navigate the ongoing uncertainty well this year we are launching a new strategy and it's a four-year strategy it's taken a bit of pulling together because we started work on it just as we were going into the pandemic and we'd kick the tires on it once or twice just to make sure that it was absolutely fit for purpose. But once we went into lockdown last year, we went through a really difficult period of examining what the organisation's needs really were, how can we best serve our beneficiaries, what do we really need to deliver the best possible services and make those as accessible as we can and 
how do we make sure we fund continue to fund the most excellent research, etc. And so we're really, really challenging ourselves to say our income has been adversely affected here. But we believe that as we go forward and the benefits of our mergers start to come through, which they already are showing, then we will be able to grow and we will be able to do much more for our beneficiaries, which is what we want to do. So we've created a kind of approach that is quite agile. So we know that we can grow quite quickly if we get the opportunity. And so what we're doing is we're going to work hard to make sure we've got those opportunities that our fundraising portfolio, we've done a massive review of every aspect of our fundraising so that we're really brought together the fundraising portfolios in the best possible way. Like everyone, it's been really tough not having all those events and so on, the community fundraising, but it's all changing because the amazing results that people are seeing on some of the digital platforms. So we've tried our best to be as agile as we possibly can. And so we're going to be as ambitious as we possibly can. And a lot of it is about really tackling the really significant changes that we need to see over the next four years around support and influence around secondary breast cancer, so metastatic breast cancer, where we really want to see some progress in research terms. We want to see improvements in access to clinical nurse specialists. And then in public health, we need to see real step change in early diagnosis, particularly for people from black and minority ethnic communities, where we know that disease is diagnosed so much later with the chances of successful treatment being really, really difficult. So we know that we've got lots of work to do there. And also the big one, we need to make sure that everyone who's diagnosed with breast cancer knows about our services and can access them. There's a lot of work for us to do as the NHS goes into its latest phase of reorganisation and so on to make sure that breast cancer services know that we are here to support patients, people when they're diagnosed with breast cancer with information to support whether they want to meet someone and speak to someone who's had breast cancer and experience of the disease similar to them. So there's so much that we have to offer and we need to get in front of people in our new comprehensive integrated form And on the research side, you will know that there are so many opportunities these days that need to be pursued. And we know much more about all the different types of breast cancer that exist, whether it's hormone sensitive breast cancer, whether it's triple negative breast cancer, a phrase that we absolutely hate. And we'd love to have a a better one there. And so much more that can be done to promote a much more targeted and personalised approach to treatment for everyone at the right stage for them as early as possible so a lot to do I love that approach in terms of being agile and ambitious and I'm going to add really focusing on awareness and creating awareness for the work that you're doing amongst your beneficiary communities and the focusing on the value of your work I think for all charities that's what's going to help drive them forward and help them thrive through the pandemic So, Dallas, I'm 
very conscious that in addition to your day job as the chief exec of Breast Cancer Now, you have many professional roles. As we talked about before, you're an independent peer in the House of Lords. You're the chair of the National Cancer Research Institute, president of Cancer 52, just to name a few. I'd really love to know, how do you balance all of these demands with your own well-being? And what has been your go-to with respect to self-care during this past year? Oh, that's a really good question. Like everyone, you know, I have struggled with lockdown. I, you know, I've been working in my bedroom for a year. <laughs> yes, um, we all have. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a challenge, especially as I really do gain a lot of energy from being with people. So I miss being with my colleagues and my team. But I do try very hard to always to explain to everyone around me the value of investing in yourself and your own well-being to try and get outside and go for walks. I happen to like cycling. I'm not a great cyclist, but I love cycling. I always get that sense of freedom on my bike. I feel like a kid. If there's a challenge for, for breast cancer now, I would always do it on my bike and I'll have something coming up soon that I'll need to to get out there training on. I do like to enjoy uh, watching some trashy telly, as I've learned, but <laughs> making, sure, making sure that I, I have boundaries because when you're working at home, trying to get a routine, making sure that I do switch off and take some exercise and so on. But I do get a lot of support. I'm really fortunate that I have the most amazing team. And also being dyslexic, I do have a very special executive assistant, Charlotte Hopkins, who looks after me with the most incredible lists and so on. So I'm aware that I am fortunate in the support that I have. The people I work with, they're just so amazing. And the way that everyone has been so flexible, incredibly hardworking and really committed to making a really positive impact for everyone affected by breast cancer. Then you have a a short conversation with someone who's going through a treatment or the outcome for them isn't going to be positive and they're spending their last months campaigning on an issue and you just think, wow, that is so inspiring. It does really help keep you going, actually, because we are making a difference and that's a real privilege. Absolutely agree with you there. In fact, I was going to ask you what has been the most inspiring thing about being involved with Breast Cancer Now and particularly thinking back in terms of your career, you've been involved with the breast cancer sector for a while and what really motivated you to get involved in the first place? Well, for me, it's been a long journey and it started off as being, when I started at Breakthrough, my father had had cancer and I'd had experience of it when I was quite young And I really identified with the desire to talk about cancer because it was something of a taboo when when my dad was ill. And so that was really important for me. But I also had a great interest in research. And although I wanted to be a research scientist, I realised quite quickly that actually I, I don't have the kind of personality that would quite work. You know, I found kind of being on my own in the lab or having to spend hours in the library looking at reference, it wasn't quite me. I was much more of an activist at heart, really. And not that science isn't isn't great activism, but at the time it felt I couldn't quite stick it. So I just found that I loved the science and I loved I loved the positivity of fundraising and, and campaigning. And then of course when I finished a break then my sister got breast cancer and then it all changed. I then became 
really aware of the uncertainty, having surgery, not knowing until you wake up what kind of breast cancer she's got, what kind of treatment that would have to be. And then later on, when she was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer, I kind of thought, right, I'm here for the for the long game here to really try and make a, a big impact on this disease because it just feels like that almost like we've done all the easy stuff and now we've got to do the hard stuff, which is to actually get that 11,000 figure down and, and help more people to live with breast cancer really positively. And Marcus has done really well. She's still with us. But the impact of the treatment she's had has been pretty heavy on her lifestyle and so on. And so for me, the really rewarding thing about all of this has been to see the improvements in treatment and to see we ran this big campaign around this drug called Cadsila and and we actually won (laughs) that result to get that drug available to women. And you just think that is actually giving people extra months of life. So that's really motivating. And then we had this someone like me service where if you're worrying about whether or not you want to have breast reconstruction, a huge operation, if you're fortunate enough at the moment, they're not really very much available at the moment, but these operations are really difficult, lots of difficult decisions. We can put put you in touch with someone who's been through almost exactly the same experience. And it just makes such a difference to people's lives. And for me, it's that making that difference, really making a difference to people's lives. I completely agree with you. Whilst I was CEO at Children with Cancer UK, one of the things we were very focused on was finding and supporting more effective treatments, which had a beneficial impact on the quality of life for children and supporting treatments and supporting families that were going through the horrible disease and the treatment. And the focus is absolutely on saving children's lives. And there's so much energy you draw from that. And certainly as a chief exec, I really felt that that was what drove me. Absolutely. I think for me, it's that simple mantra of providing support for today and hope for tomorrow. And it really does mean that to me to be able to do that really effectively. I love that, providing support for today and hope for tomorrow. Really lovely. So does thinking back on your own leadership journey, and I must say you have absolutely made an impact on the breast cancer sector, it's so inspirational just to to see what you've achieved. And I'm curious to know, what advice would you give to yourself on day one of first becoming a CEO? <laughs> oh, wow. That is such a good question. I think it would be something like allow yourself some time to reflect because sometimes giving yourself a bit of reflection time, you can see some nuances or have some fresh perspective and so on that doesn't always come to you straight away so allow yourself time because if you're making the really big important decisions then you won't have to make too many of those very often but but when you do they are absolutely the big ones and you need to give yourself the time and space to reflect and think and then stick to it and make it happen I think maybe when I was younger, I was in a terrible hurry. (laughs) (laughs) 
yes, I think we're all as charity chief execs impatient for change and impatient to yeah. make an impact for our communities and beneficiaries. Delith, it's been so wonderful talking with you. And in closing now, do you have any final thoughts or reflections that you would like to share? I mean, what is one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this conversation? I think it's about how we can achieve more together for our beneficiaries and keeping that relentless focus on what it is our beneficiaries want from us. And a lot of the time, I think that's about us providing hope, providing some really, really thoughtful thoughts on the future and options for how we can make this world a better place that others can get behind. Thank you, Delith. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's gone so quickly. (laughs) I so enjoyed speaking with Baroness Delith Morgan, CEO of Breast Cancer Now. She had so much wisdom to share and her insights on mergers, on collaboration, on influence in government, and actually on just about everything, were absolutely invaluable. I loved how she said that as charities, our core purpose is to provide support for today and hope for tomorrow, and that as a sector, we can achieve more together through more collaboration, along with a relentless focus on what our beneficiaries truly want and need. I'm so grateful to all of our followers and listeners who helped the show reach the top of the Apple podcast rankings for the non-profit podcast category. It is such an incredible endorsement of our content and the rankings and reviews really make a difference because they enable more people to find and listen to the podcast. So if you enjoyed the show, please click the subscribe button on your podcast app and consider leaving us a five-star review. Visit our website, thecharityceo.com for full show details and to submit suggestions or questions for future guests. Thank you for listening.